glad to see all of you this morning. I'm grateful that you're, uh, grateful that you're here on uh, Father's Day. Uh, I just wanted to start this morning by saying thanks to Gary. For those of you who are here last week, Gary was preaching, and I just want to thank him for making amends to Dunville and to all of the Dutch people in our church. Uh, and for those of you who weren't here or maybe you're still offended by the stuff he said, I'd like to l- ask you to re-listen to part two of this series, uh, which deals with forgiveness. Uh, and so this morning... If you haven't been here in a while, you're coming in at the tail end of a series. We've been talking about uh, the series we call One Another. It's the one command that Jesus gave to his followers. Just one. He just gave one command. It was simple, but it wasn't easy. And we've been kind of looking at, at uh, that over the last couple of weeks because it's, it's one command that just en- encompassed all of the rest. Uh, and we've shown you this verse every week, and hopefully you'll remember it even after this because the command doesn't stop after today. But um, John, John, who was a, an eyewitness follower of Jesus, wrote down these words. Here's what Jesus said on the last night uh, before he was betrayed. He said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. That was to Jesus' followers then. Now, uh, this is the new commandment. Love one another. That's where the one another comes from. Love one another just as I have loved you. You should love one another and your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. To the Jesus followers here this morning, that's a command to us. It's not an option. He's saying, if you're my follower, uh, he says the command is to love one another. And it's in response to the fact that you're completely loved by him. Was we sang those songs, I'm loved by you. That's not just a thought. That is so, so true. And he says that it's a proof to others. It'll be a proof to the world that you're actually a Jesus follower. Not the fact that you sit in church on a Sunday morning. That doesn't say anything about whether you're a Jesus follower or whether I'm a Jesus follower. He said the proof will be in how you love one another. And so over the last couple of weeks, we looked at this simple command that wasn't always simple to live out. We looked at where Paul, how Paul talked about it. He mentioned, you know, brothers, love one another also sounds like forgive one another. And then we heard the words from Peter and James and others who were, who were giving new imperatives, not new commands, just new imperatives of this is how you live out love one another. And we saw that it was be patient, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another, which if you missed the most awkward sermon ever, you're probably grateful. But um, this morning, as we look at uh, what those guys have said, we're going to share this morning just about what, what John John, the eyewitness follower of Jesus, had to say about this one command, love one another. And so, but before we get into that, I just want to speak to all the parents here this morning. Um, as parents, have you ever cherished something from childhood and that your, that your children do not share the same affinity for? You cherish something, but they, they don't. Let me just um, bring this this morning. Here's my little illustration. So this, this is a genuine Radio Shack radio control car that I bought when I was 12. I know. It's pretty, pretty impressive. So I saved up all my allowances, $50 back then. And I thought, man, that's like 200 bucks today. And I was like, that is a, that's a, like a lot of money. And so I bought this radio control car with my allowance. And then I used it for about three days. And then the batteries wore out. And it took two nine volts and four double A's. And what the problem was, I didn't have enough money to buy any more batteries. So I put it back in its case. And I would look longingly at it every once in a while and wonder, do I want to spend my allowance, you know, on three more days of riding? you know, racing this car. And oftentimes that didn't happen. And so I would just leave it in there. And it was, it was only used for three days. And I would look at it every once in a while and I would dust it off. And, I, and over the years, I don't know what happened to it. But then, you know, 28 years later, we were moving and we found it. And I looked at this and I was like, it's my radio control car. I, I, I love that thing. You know, I was like, I can't believe it's still here. It's in perfect condition. So I immediately went on Kijiji to see what it was worth. Still 50 bucks. And so I was like, well, then maybe what I'll do is I'll give it to my kids. Like, oh man, 
they're going to be so excited to have to be able to play with this. They're always asking for a radio-controlled car. Well, now they can have one. And so I let them, I, I gently pull it out of the box, and I put batteries in and let them play with it. I was like, man, this is like so, so important. And, and later on, I hear bangs and crashes. I'm like, look, and they, they drove it off the counter. And so I was like, the other, yesterday, I'm asking those kids, I'm like, hey, this was a while back. I, was like, I asked them yesterday, though, guys, you guys know where my radio control car is? And Max is like, yeah, yeah, I know where it is. And he comes and brings it up. And, and I said to him, um, does it still work? He's like, no, Dad, it makes a dreadful noise when you start. I was, like, I was like, what? So I put batteries in a try, and it barely goes forwards anymore, just grinding gears. And, and, and it goes in reverse. And I was like, oh. I cared so deeply about this thing to save it for 30 years, only for you to wreck it in 30 seconds. I didn't say that to them, but I felt it inside. <laughs> but, but I realized something. I was actually reaping something that I had sown in my childhood. Because as a boy, my dad had this little red tractor that he saved from when he was a boy. And as he had played with it his whole life, he got to the spot where he couldn't wait to give it to his kids. And it was in a little bit of you know, broken condition. So he had lovingly repaired it with baler twine, which is like Dutch man's duct tape. So he rep- repaired it. And, and then it was the joy of his life when his two young sons were finally old enough to be able to play with his little red tractor. And he gave us a little red tractor and it was the joy of our lives to put that thing out of its misery. We destroyed it in no time. And we heard about it for years after that about the little red tractor. And so dad, if you're listening online, for the first time, I understand your pain of what you felt back then. And I apologize sincerely. Thank you for keeping us as your sons after that moment and happy Father's Day. So with those stories in mind this morning, of not caring as much about something that others had cared about uh, as much. Let's take a look in history at a similar experience. Um, this thing called the church that we, we talk about, Jesus came to the planet. He lived for 33 years. He, uh, he started this thing called, we call it the church, but they didn't call it the church. They called it the gathering, similar to what you would see this morning, the, the gathering of people, the gathering of, um, of people who would follow Jesus. And as he died and gave his life for this gathering and rose from the dead and absolutely changed the way people thought about God and about religion and everything else, he left 11 men in charge and he said, listen, I'm leaving, you guys Keep making the gathering happen. Make more disciples and teach them my one command to love one another and allow that to continue on. And so he said, go into all the worlds. And their first thing is they just stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go anywhere. And so then persecution came and that helped spread them out. Well, they left Jerusalem, but they took this message with them of loving one another. And then there was this man named Saul of Tarsus who was, you know, the great persecutor, hated everything to do with Christianity. And he would chase these Christians down to all these towns and drag them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, have them thrown in jail, or some of them, you know, um, some of them were uh, murdered as a result of their trust in Jesus. But it was on one of these trips where Paul has an experience with Jesus. And it so profoundly changes his life that he begins going the exact opposite way. He joins the Jesus followers and he starts all kinds of these gatherings all over the Roman Empire. And so one of them, he starts in this place called Ephesus. And Ephesus, uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. So it's a real place. There's a real people. And so Paul starts this, this little gathering in Ephesus in AD 52, 52 AD. It says, um, and Ephesus at that point was a pretty important city. You can see it's right by the water. It was a trading city. Uh, and it was, it was pretty important. But it was also the home of some of the wonders of the world. The, the temple of Artemis was built in, um, in Ephesus and it was, in its heyday, it looked something like this. It no longer looks like that. But it was made to seat 24,500 people. That's quite the church. They built that in that place. And then they had the Library of Celsus 
So the Library of Celsus was this, this building. This is all that's left of it. But it, it held 12,000 scrolls of information. It was the third largest library in the world. They had great religion. They had great information. And they had great um, entertainment. They had the great theater, which could seat 25,000 people. And there was a young guy here last night named Cpan who has been to this theater. And he says, man, when you stand at the top and you look down, it's unbelievable at what this, this, this place that they had created. Here's these wonders in this town. And they also had this group of people in their city that made them wonder. This group of people called the gathering, called the church, that made them wonder, what is up with these people? They don't live like anyone else. They treat people differently. They're not trying to become powerful. They're always trying to take the lowest spot. They treat people differently. And it made them wonder. And some would wonder and would begin to join them. And, and so a couple of years later, in AD 54, Paul returned to Ephesus. And he, uh, he went there and he spent two years teaching people and discipling them and, and encouraging them in their walk with Christ. And the church grew into an incredible, incredible force in Ephesus. And what happened as a result, this, this church of people who would worship this invincible God so passionately no longer needed the idols of Artemis that all the, these, the, the men in the city were creating these idols and it was their business, but nobody wanted that anymore. And so they created this incredible uproar and they tossed Paul out of their city. But the church remained, the movement remained, the gathering remained. A few years later, he stops by on his way to Rome and he, he doesn't go into the town. He says, you know, I know that's trouble. So he says to the 12 pastors, now they have 12 pastors. He's like, would you guys come meet me? And so they come and meet him on the shore and they pray together. And it says they weep together because they know it's the last time they're going to see Paul as he heads off to Rome. But while he's in Rome, he writes a letter to them. And we think letter, you know, we think letter, but this is what he wrote. A scroll, as he wrote to them, he wrote this letter called, um, we call it um, uh, Ephesians. But he wrote this to them in AD 62. So about uh, 10 years after he had first been there. And he wrote, the, and, and as you read Ephesians, you recognize this is a healthy healthy, growing church that he's writing to. Well, Paul would be executed shortly after writing this letter. And tradition tells us, the early church fathers tell us that John, John, the eyewitness follower of Jesus, moves to Ephesus to take over the work that had begun there. And so in AD 66, John moves to Ephesus. You're like, well, what's all this history? But here's what happens. The church was thriving while John was there, but they continue, continue to face persecution. And then Emperor Domitian, the stone-faced emperor, took John and banished him from this place in Ephesus and banished him to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos was uh, an island off the coast. This island was a copper mine where they would send, the Romans would send any of their slaves into forced labor there. We don't know that John worked in the copper mines, but we know he was there because he tells us. He tells us. He, he writes a letter from this island. He's in his 60s at this point. And he writes this letter, which was inspired by a vision that he had, a vision on this island of where he, he had a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus tells John, says, listen, I want you to write down all the stuff I'm telling you. I want you to send it to the seven gatherings of Jesus followers all around Asia. And he says, I want you to, um, I want you to write down some of this stuff, but I want you to write it personally to them from me. This is not the words of John. This is the words of Jesus through John. And so John writes an introduction of this is, this is who's speaking to you. And then it's kind of like he gives a report card for the seven church gatherings in, Ephes or in, in Asia. How many of you remember back in the day when you got your report card at school? You know, they give you this sealed envelope and say, you know, take this to your parents. Do not open it on the bus. Do not share it with anybody else. Nobody gets to see anybody else's grades. And some of you smirk because you're like, yeah, as soon as you get on the bus, you just open it and, you know, re-lick and stick it and whatever. But um, 
I remember that, you know, being the firstborn, bringing it home like nobody gets to see and just hoping they didn't write the, the bad stuff that I had done at school. And, um, but this wasn't like that. Here was the, John saying, hey, here's, here's the report card. There's only one question on the report card. What does Jesus think of your church? <laughs> I wonder what our report card would look like. You know, what does Jesus think of your church? Well, he wrote the report card for seven churches and he let, just let everybody read everybody's. And they weren't all that pretty. And the first one on the list was Ephesus. And John would live there, would pastor there. You can, you can just picture him. He's sitting on the island as Jesus speaks to him. And he's like, John, write this down to the church of Ephesus. He's like, my church? Yeah, here's what I want you to write to your church. And here's what he says in Revelation 2. If you have your Bible, go there. It's, if, you, if you're like, where do I find it? Go to the very end. Flip back a few pages and you'll find Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1, it says this. Write this letter to the angel. That word just means messenger. So most likely it's not a an angelic being as much as it's like the pastor of the church. Write this letter to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He tells them who the message is from. It's not just John. This is Jesus speaking to this church. And it's not just this church because all the other churches get to read it as we do as well. He says, I'm writing to the gathering, but not just the gathering. I'm writing to the messenger as well. Not just to the gathering, but to the messenger as well. In Revelation 2, verse 2, he says this, I know all the things you do. John's writing it down. I know all the things you do. It's basically like God saying to them, I know you. Gathering of believers in Ephesus, I know you. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. You haven't been sidetracked, even though there's been incredible persecution. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, who say they're teachers of God, but, but they're not. And you discovered it. You didn't just, like, you didn't just take everything you heard from the, from the people who were speaking. You looked it up in the Word, and you tested it to see if it was true. You've discovered some of them weren't telling the truth. Verse 3 says, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. I can picture John writing it, because like, it'd be like me if Jesus was saying, Mark, here's what I want you to write about Kingsway. Wow, those people work hard. They're incredible. They, they go through some tough stuff, but they don't quit. They never, they're, they're, they're hard, hard following after me. I can be like, John's like, yeah, that's my church. He's like, right, this is great. This is great. And he, and he writes and he's thinking, man, I haven't been there in a long time. But yeah, the good old days, the good old days. How many of you ever think about the good old days? How many of you ever gone back to the good old days because they were just so good? Those places that you just remembered to be so awesome. Well, um, you know, he's, he's saying, um, my, back in the day, my Aunt Heather and my Uncle Henry, I don't even know if they were married at that point, they were dating, but they took my brother and I on this trip to this amazing, amazing place for kids. It was called Wet and Wild. I don't know if anybody remembers Wet and Wild. Wet and Wild, well, this is Wet and Wild uh, in its heyday. And I just remembered, it was like awesome. They had water slides like this. And then they had my first experience with bumper boats. I don't know if anybody ever had a chance to ride bumper boats. They don't let you have those anymore. The water reeked, but the boats were awesome. And I was like, man, this is so cool. And we had bumper cars. And then we had like a, my first experience with a go-kart race. And I beat my brother. And if you ever meet him and he tells you different, it's my story. And so we, uh, you know, we, we, I just, it was just so, so incredible. And years later, I thought, man, I'd love to bring my kids there someday. But, you know, just a, just a few years back, this is what Wet n Wild looks like now. It, the, the, it's just abandoned. It'd been abandoned. So there's the water slides and other people have visited and left their names and tags. But it was just the rides were, you know, no, no longer. It's this, this abandoned place. And I was like, huh. And John, 
John is about to have, you know, this moment where he's like thinking back to the good old days. Oh, the good old days. I can't wait. And as he's writing, yes, they're so amazing. This group is so amazing. Here's what happens in verse 4. He says this. Jesus says to him, but. You know, as a kid, those are the worst words, right? They tell you something, they're like, but. You're like, oh, man. (laughs) I don't want the but. You know, just, just, just leave with the good stuff. But he says this. But I have a complaint against you. To the church in Ephesus, he says, you don't love me or one another as you did at first. He says, if you remember the King James, anybody remember the King James, the way it says this? You've left your, you left your first love. The word left, he says, you've disregarded it. You just simply let go of, of loving one another. You went to another place instead of that, and you left something important behind. You ever leave something important behind? I, my mother-in-law a couple of years ago went to the Ford Museum in, uh, in the States and came home without her wallet. And so back, you know, back and forth of like, you know, when are you going to come to the Ford Museum next? Well, sooner than I planned because I got, I got to come back and get my, get my wallet. I, I know that, uh, one person, they, they left their phone on top of their car as they went for a drive down Highway 3. And they, they, they left it behind and couldn't find their phone. Um, I remember as a child, my parents, we had been visiting my Uncle Henry and Aunt Heather. And it was a fun day. And then we had drove from Grassy, like Grimsby area, all the way home to Smithville. And we got home to Smithville and walked in the house and the phone was ringing. So my dad picks up the phone. It's my Aunt Heather. And she's like, hey, did you guys forget anything? And uh, my parents are like, you know, Jackie, we forget anything? No, no, I don't think so. Maybe the casserole. No, I got the casserole dish. We're good. And then my aunt's on the phone. She's like, "Um, no, like, did you forget anyone? Before cell phones, all of a sudden my parents are like, oh, they start counting kids. Like, where's Lenny? You know, Lenny. He's like, is Lenny at your house? Yeah, you, you forgot a child. And so... But let that be a lesson to you. If you want to have more children than you have hands, that, that, that becomes possible. Anything after four, you're on your own. So if you see any stone kids around Holloman County, that <laughs> may be a possibility. But don't worry. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus, and so they're still in the good book, so it's good. But here's, here's the thing. When you lose something important, what do you do? They go and find it, and so Jesus is saying to them, listen, you've, you've forgotten something important. You don't realize it, but you did. You did, and here's the phone call. Hey, you forgot something. You know, things look good on the outside of this church. They're, they're hardworking. They're doing all the right things, but inside, something is, something's not quite right. I remember in Townsend, we had this crabapple tree that was just incredibly beautiful, but I, every spring, I'd go out there, and I'd see all this pile of sawdust at the bottom of the tree. Like, this is so weird, and there was holes all the way in, and so finally, you know, I started looking in there, and the ants had just burrow, burrowed up in the center of the tree and just basically ate the whole core away, and though the tree looked beautiful that spring, I knew its days were numbered. And sure enough, sure enough, that tree was dead uh, within a year. Why? Because inside, it it might look fine on the outside, but inside it was dying. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. Don't focus so much on the outside because you're missing something really, really important. Here's what he says in Revelation 2 verse 5. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Those words, look, you know, um, look how far you've fallen. Turn back. Oh, you have the other verse, sorry. There's, um, there's the one where it says just those words, look and turn back and do. Those are words like if you read the New King James, they, they, they say, hey, remember and repent and, and redo. Remember. He's, here's what he's saying to them. Hey, this is where things are. This is where you're at as far as life goes. But he says, I want you to, to, to remember a few things. And so this, what does remember mean? Remember is like call to mind. Intentionally remember where you came from. 
Think about how this whole thing called the church got started. I want you to call it to mind. And then he says, now I want you to repent. We, we kind of like, we picture like people with those, like Gary wearing the sandwich boards, yelling, repent, repent. But that's not what this word means. It simply means change your mind. You know, call it to mind, remember it, but then change your mind about what's really most important. Because as a church, it isn't most important to have lots of people show up on a Sunday. And it's not most important to build another building. And it's not most important, you know, to, to, to have something that's going to, you know, last forever as far as the building's concerned. It's, it's not. What's most important, he says, change your mind to what's most important. And then he says this, redo. Redo means change your actions. Change your actions to what? Of how you treat one another. Revelation 2.5, the rest of it. Look how far you fall and remember where you came from. Repent, change your mind and, and redo the things you did at first. If you don't, if you don't repent, if you don't change that, he says, I'm going to come remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And we read that and be like, ooh, okay, Jesus, you're going to remove our lampstand. Whoop-dee-whoop-dee. But Remove a lampstand, what does it mean? Well, Jesus had talked about this lampstand often. Actually, Matthew had written about it. Mark wrote about it. Luke wrote about it. Jesus' most famous message that we, we believe he probably spoke many, many times, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew writes it this way. Jesus says to them, you're the light of the world. What is he saying when Jesus was there? He's like, you, you're the light of the world. You, light of the world. You, yeah, even you, light of the world. You, you're the light of the world. You are, you are, you are. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill, that's not easily hidden. And he says, and people don't take a, a, a light and put it you know, under a basket. They, they put it on a stand so that it shines. You are the, are, are the light that he says, don't put that under a basket. He says, you're designed to shine. Well, how do we shine? He says, he, Jesus let them know in, that, on, uh, in, that, in those moments. He said, let your good works shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your father in heaven. He says, let your good work shine. And he was referencing something that he knew the command he would give, this idea of loving one another. It, it would shine. Let your good deeds shine. See, when we think lights, we think flip the switch and we have light. They did not think that way. They thought light is fire. If I'm going to keep this thing lit, I've got to keep giving it fuel. I have got to keep giving this lamp oil. I've got to keep giving it fuel for it to stay alive. And he says, if you're the light of the world, you better keep giving, as a church, you better keep giving yourself fuel to keep this thing alive. And so John now as well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote about it. Now John writes about it as well. This reminder from Jesus, if you don't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And so they would have pictured lampstand. They would have pictured an oil lamp sitting on a stand. And we think, eh, it's really not the biggest deal. If, if I lose this candle or if we chuck this candle, none of you are going to care because we, we barely use these things. Maybe someday you sit down and you're like, oh, I just want to have a tea, you know, by candlelight or Christmas, we bring out the candles. Birthdays, we bring out the candles, but we really don't care too much about the candles. But them, this was like their one, this was their one thing at night that gave them power. They were powerless in the darkness without light. This was the thing that brought their community of, of family around the table at night to share their, their meal together. They would sit around. This thing was, this light was so, so important to them. And they realized if that goes out, it matters. It matters. And so I think Jesus would have said to the, to the group as he's writing through John, if it ain't shining, it ain't worth keeping. There's a quote from Jesus you can tweet. If it ain't shining, it ain't worth keeping. And he's saying that about a church, about a gathering of people. If they're not shining, they ain't worth keeping. It sounds a bit harsh, but we actually do the same thing. 
You know, none of us keep old light bulbs that don't work anymore. If we figure it out, we don't keep them. It's not like you say, oh man, and people come over to your house and like, what's that cupboard full over there? Oh, that's all my old light bulbs. <laughs> we just keep them because the design is just so pretty. Like you see the light coming through the glass. It's just, it's just so beautiful. The architecture and design of the, you know, the CFL bulb is like, you can't throw that away. No, no. You're like, if it ain't shining, it ain't worth keeping and you chuck it. See, the thing is, we would do the same thing. And, and Jesus is saying that about churches. He's saying if the gathering of believers isn't shining. It, it, it really isn't worth keeping. And it wasn't just a message for Ephesus because none of us are immune. Kingsway, we are not immune to that same thought that if we aren't shining, we really aren't worth keeping. And if we look around our nation, we see buildings that were kept because, oh, they're, look at this is the church. This is a great building. Got to keep it. And yet it's not shining. And you see churches dying every single year in Canada. Why? Because I believe that's what's happening. They're just being saying, they're not shining. They ain't worth, they ain't worth keeping. And he's giving a warning to them, not just to them, but to anyone who would read it. And we wonder, I wonder, man, what did those Ephesians do when they heard this warning? What did they actually do when they heard this? And we actually do have some insight into what happened with them because a few years later, a few years later after this letter would have arrived to them and they would have read it, a few years later, it's believed by many of the scholars that John was actually released from the Isle of Patmos because they believe his last letters, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John and his gospel were all written in Ephesus after his time uh, on the island of Patmos. And John would have been an old man. It says some of the early Christian fathers said that in the meetings, they would carry John in because he was so old. And he would sit down and he would tell his, his um, brothers to love one another. John was seen, had seen a lot of stuff happen. He's old. He saw, you know, he saw all kinds of difficult things. All of his friends are gone. You know, all the ones that he followed Jesus around, Peter, you know, Matthew, James, they're, they're all dead. Paul's dead. They're all gone. It's just him. He endured all kinds of persecution, but as he's sitting in Ephesus with these people, after all of this, he writes these words, 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, dear friends. <laughs> he came back to this church he had written to, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God, and anyone who loves is a child of God. They're reborn. They know God. The people who love one another, they're the ones who actually know God. So anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God, he is love. John's the first one to ever say those words, that God is love. And we might say, what? You're still on that love thing, John? Still? You know, how do you know God is love? And I wonder if he thought about it and just simply thought, you know what? You know how I know? Because God showed me. God showed me how much he loved us. You know how? By sending his one and only son into this world so that I might have eternal life through him. I know he loves me. I know he loves us. And this is, this is real love. Real love is not that we love God. It's that he loved us first and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away my sin, your sin, our sin. That, that's incredible love. And he says, dear friends, verse 11, since God loves us that much, surely we ought to love one another. If God loves us that much, we surely ought to love one another. And we wonder, did they make it? Did they heed the warning? We, we find out in AD 110, which is 20 years later, a man named Ignatius. Ignatius was actually discipled by John. And so he writes a letter back to this church in Ephesus. He's now a pastor in a place called Antioch. And he writes this, and this is how he starts his letter. Ignatius, who is called Theophorus to the church, which is in Ephesus in Asia, deservedly, you're the most happy. 
You've been blessed in the greatness and fullness of God the Father and predestinated before the beginning of time that it should be always for an enduring and unchangeable glory. He writes to them 20 years after John's letter and says, hey, this church is still vibrant and alive. But unfortunately, we also read documents later that in AD 300, things began to change in the church. All of a sudden, people came in and said, we want the power. And they began to, they began to say that Christianity is actually a, higher, a hierarchy. It's about the pastors and those, the, the, the religious leaders. They're, they're above one another. And they started going above one another instead of Jesus' command, which was simply love one another. And as a result of that, we know their light went out. Their light went out. But the movement survived. This movement of, of gatherings of Jesus followers survived. It's, it's fascinating when you study secular um, um, authors who study our early religion. And they look at Christianity and they write, this thing never should have survived the first century. Like all other religions start and, and progress differently than this one. This one, the way it started, it never should have lasted. And yet we know because Jesus promised it would that it would last. This one may not have, but all over the world, there were these gatherings of Jesus followers that kept the fires burning. The Jesus followers kept making their world wonder. And others would be drawn to it, and they would wonder. Others wrote about um, the church as a whole. It's interesting if you, if you read um, uh, 50 years after this account, AD 140, there was a guy named Lucian. Lucian was a Greek author. He wrote plays, and so he wasn't a believer, but he wrote about Christians in his plays. And in his plays, we have some of their written things. He said this, It's incredible to see the fervor with which these people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they're all brothers. That's what he writes about them. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. And we hear, you know, that's 50 years later. John is long gone. 120 years later in AD 210, there's a guy named Cecilius. Cecilius is a pagan, wants nothing to do with God, but he knows this man named Octavius who's a Jesus follower and they write letters back and forth to one another. Octavius passes away, but it's one of his best friends who says to honor Octavius, I want to put these letters into a book because those were incredibly rare back then. He says, I'm going to put them together. And, and, and in that, Cecilius, you can read his whole thing. It's pretty fascinating the way he disses the Christians of that day. And yet in it, you just read like, yeah, he says their, their, their weakness, here's all their weaknesses. And we see them as, as incredible strengths. But he wrote this. He wrote to Octavius, these Christians, they know one another by secret marks and signs. And they love one another almost before they know one another. Who does that? What a slam. <laughs> AD 220, you know, 130 years later, Tertullian, who was from uh, North Africa, an author of so many of the things that we wonder about back then, he writes about the early church and he says this, it's our care for the helpless. It's our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. That's 130 years after John writes this message. Why? Because it just kept happening. This group that would love one another would be the ones to carry the church, the movement into the next generation. And so fast forward 1,986 years to AD 2019. Kingsway Church. You're part of the movement. You're part of the movement. I love how Stephen Furtick says, we're not waiting for a move of God. You are the move of God. We're not waiting for a feeling to happen. You are the love of God on display here. And the, the movement remains, but the warning remains as well. 
And so this challenge for us this morning is this, as we close, what does this mean for you and what does it mean for me? We know what they did when they heard the message, at least that first generation, but what will you do when you hear the message this morning? Are the things that prick in your heart, you're like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> Christianity's kind of just the thing I do. I just go to church. It's my Sunday routine. As I thought about it, you know, what, what will I do when I hear the me- message? Will we, will we keep the fire burning? Will we make sure that there's fuel for the fire? That should have gone differently. If at first we don't succeed, will we try, try again? <laughs> to make sure. He said, well, what's the fuel? What's the fuel that keeps it going? And Paul would have said this. It's that love, one another. It's things like this, being patient with one another, being kind with one another, forgiving one another. Some of you are so hung up on this forgiveness thing. You hear the word and it just gets you. You can't forgive and Jesus is saying, listen, forgiving one another is important. Serving one another, it's the, it is the actual shining of the fire. Not jealous, not self-seeking, not irritable. That kind of fuel is great for marriages. It's great for parenting. It's great for, for friendship. It's great for the gathering, but it's also great for reaching lost people. And it's what John said, last verse, 1 John 4, verse 12. John wrote to them after he said, brothers, let's keep loving one another. Those who love, they're the ones who are in fellowship with God. They're the ones who know God because no one's ever seen God, he says. But if we love each other, God lives on us and his love is brought to full expression in us. People don't see God. You know, the people around you, they don't see God. To the Jesus follower here this morning, people are not likely to go and just read a Bible. Not likely, but what are they going to do? They're going to see you and they're going to read your life. They're going to see and read your works your love for one another, and ultimately they'll see God in you. It's what Matthew said. They will glorify your Father in heaven. They will see God at work in you. There's a group called Shinedown, not believers, but have an interesting modern take on this thought. And they said this in their song, How Did, How Did You Love? They say this, no one gets out alive. Every day it's do or die. The one thing you leave behind is how did you love? How did you love? It's not what you believe. And I think what they mean, it's not just that you believe something. It's that those beliefs lead to action. It's not just those prayers that make you bleed. But while you're on your knees, how did you love? Was it just about, oh, this is my religious thing? Or was it more? Because Jesus didn't call us to just a, a concept. He called us to actions. And I think about that, you know, the idea of how did we love? How did we love? It's how they loved that made the world wonder back then. And we can make the world wonder again simply by how we love. He valued the gathering enough, Jesus did, to give his life for it. It's like this. He loved that thing and then passed it on to the next generation. What are we doing with it, really? I ask myself the question because it's to the messenger as well. What are we really doing? I had to ask myself, what am I doing today to contribute to the movement of Jesus on this planet? What am I really doing today? What are you really doing today to contribute to the movement of Jesus on this planet. So close this morning, just have two thoughts for two groups of people. To the Jesus followers here today, it's Father's Day. But every day really is Father's Day. As you think about the joy of a father, like when Dan called me and told me that they had the baby, I could hear the smile over the phone. Like it was just, there's something, there's, there's no greater joy than seeing your child for the very first time. As a father, there's no greater joy than that. And I think about the joys of a father. 
You know, the joy of, in my life as a father, one of my greatest joys is when I see my kids love one another. You know, I, I tolerate them fighting one another, but I, it's joy when they love one another. Max the other day fell off the, the, the brick wall or stone wall in our backyard, and there's Finn. I'm watching through the window from my office, and there's Finn, runs up, and he's lifting up his shirt and looking at his back to make sure his brother is okay. The other day, they found my old train set, and they dragged it down. I was like, oh, it's a train set, and, and they played with it for hours, and all three of them together. I'm just like, oh, man, got to take a picture of this moment just to remember what it's like when they love one another. To the Jesus followers here today, man, the joy of our Heavenly Father to see his children loving one another. There's nothing greater you can do to bring joy to his face than simply obeying that command. And for those of you this morning who are not Jesus followers, the joy of uh, (laughs) Heavenly Father is just like Dan, seeing a child for the first time. And that's how God describes this thing called life that for so many of us, you know, all of us really, we were born in, in this thing called sin. We lived life for us. And it just brought about negative things all the time. It always brings death. It's killed relationships, killed marriages, killing people physically. It's just brought death emotionally, mentally, everything. It just brings death whatever, and, and everything it touches is this thing called sin. And we're stuck in it. We're stuck in it. You know, there's absolutely nothing we can do to get ourselves out. We can't behave better. Maybe you came to church thinking, you know, if, at least if I go to church on Father's Day, I'm getting in with God. Maybe Father's Day, Christmas, Easter, that should get me something. The problem is we can't do it on our own at all, not even at all. We can't even make our stand better with him. But the good news is that he did it for us, that God so loved us, that he saw us in our mess and said, you know what, I'll give my life to them so I can give them a hand. And if they'll reach out and take it, I'll lift them out of it. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to lift you out, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me perfect heavenly father for so many you've had a terrible experience with a father you're like how do i i don't want he's the just picture what the perfect father would be like and then multiply that by a million that's god's thoughts towards you as a child he says simply i call you my child and when you turn to him for the first time it's like he says you're reborn something brand new happens inside it's like the joy of a heavenly father to see his child for the first time well that could be you this morning and the second thought is this the joy of a father whose prodigal son returns. You know, when relationships that have been at odds become back together again, maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of wandered away from church, wandered away from faith. You know, you're like, I don't know if I believe all that stuff. I don't know about all this stuff. And you, you kind of wandered away. Your heavenly father's calling to you this morning. He's calling to you this morning. He's, <laughs> he's saying, listen, you know what? Like, I, you don't have to make up for all the stuff since you've walked away. I just want relationship with you. I just want relationship with you. Maybe you got all kinds of questions and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the joint starting point. Come have a conversation with us, but your life is way too important to just waste it. When Heavenly Father is calling out to you this morning. So we, the great thing for us is that we all have a choice. You have a choice. No one can force you into anything. But the choice is yours this morning, that if you want to, if you want to follow Jesus, he's saying, come, come follow me. He did everything required and welcome to a family. (laughs) What a great family where he actually commands the rest of your brothers and sisters that they have to love you. (laughs) Welcome to church. Welcome to the light of the world. I hope that as we've shared today, that Holy Spirit drops the things in your heart that need to be there to take and you mull over this week. And I'll leave you with this question. How did you love? How did you love today? How did you really love today?
Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the revelation that it gives us. Thank you for your love for us. We've seen it on display through the death of your son, through the change in our hearts. Witness it. Witness it each and every day of what you're doing in us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, thank you for eternity and the chance to spend life with you. Uh, knowing that it starts today as we walk out of this place with you, love personified. God, I pray that there'd be opportunities for us to show that love to one another, show that love to the ones around us, and may they see you in us. Oh, Lord, may they find the hope, the living hope in you as a result. Thank you for all the amazing men in our church family and in our lives. Pray a blessing on them today. And ultimately, God, we want to live today for your glory. Uh, to put a smile on your face, Heavenly Father. It's in your amazing name I pray. Amen.